You're going to love this. Just love it. Jokers beware. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, 90.7 FM, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the iTunes, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation Network, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. You can run, but you can't hide. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us for this next thrilling adventure of the Bradcast. Lots to cover today. Some breaking news as we go to air. Nebraska has now officially abolished the death penalty. That's right. Uh, Nebraska has now become the first conservative state, as uh, they are described in the New York Times, in more than 40 years to abolish the death penalty with lawmakers defying their Republican governor, Pete Ricketts, uh, who had vetoed the, the state legislature's abolishment. Is that a word? Abolishment of the death penalty? Yeah, I think that's a word. Abolition. I think it would be abolition of the death penalty. Well, in any event. Uh, they over they overcame his veto. He, of course, was a staunch supporter of uh, killing people. <laughs> and uh, he had lobbied vigor- vigorously against banning the death penalty in Nebraska, says the New York Times, by a 32-19 vote that cut across party lines. The legislature overrode the governor's veto on Tuesday of a bill repealing the state's death penalty. The measure garnered just enough votes to overcome that veto. That is good news. We spoke on this program just a week or so ago with uh, Nebraska's Republican state senator Al Davis about this measure just after, I think it was the day after, that the uh, the legislature, which is about two to one Republican, though they don't caucus by party. They actually are nonpartisan. They, they caucus uh, geographically there in the uh, Nebraska State Senate. It is a unicameral body. It is the only chamber. They don't have a House. They just have the one Senate. We spoke with Republican uh, State Senator Al Davis after the good news of the uh, initial repeal of that law, and he said that they had a veto-proof majority that would be able to overcome the governor if he vetoed it as expected, which he did, although at the time Al Davis said they had a 
veto-proof majority on the uh, on the vote to abolish it, but that since that news had gotten out, uh, particularly Republican legislators were getting a lot of phone calls in saying, "Don't abolish it! Don't!" Do-. So there was a question about whether that veto-proof majority would stand, and apparently it now has. It looks like they lost a couple of votes. I think it was a. 3217, if I recall originally, they needed 30 votes to overcome. So they lost a couple votes, but they had enough to over uh, override the veto. So good news. Way to go, Nebraska. Thank you for uh, entering the tw- 20th century. At this <laughs> that point. would be the 20th yeah. century. And joining, of course, other developed countries in the world who have all banned the death penalty, abolished it. Oh, those developed countries. What do they know about... Uh, humanity so uh good news there uh, happy to uh, get that as we go to air today uh got a lot coming up on uh today's uh, program um the uh including uh we're going to speak with oren squire an independent journalist and playwright uh who recently wrote an essay titled biker Gra- biker gangs tamir rice and the rise of white fragility over a Talking Points memo. He's going to join us to talk about, first, well, the difference between how the media dealt with the Texas biker gang shootout over the Memorial Day weekend. That was, uh, actually, it was before that. It was before the Memorial Day weekend. Um, We talked a little bit about it on this show at the time that it happened, and uh, the difference between how this was treated in the media versus... What happened after the killing of Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Tamir, Tamir Rice in, uh, in Cleveland, and so on. And how it's different when it's, uh, well, let's call it white-on-white violence by thugs in Texas. And you didn't hear that word a lot when it came to these uh, thugs in Texas with hundreds of arms, hundreds of guns shooting it out at a uh, at a Texas restaurant and killing people and killing nine people unlike the peaceful protesters in, in Baltimore, in Baltimore and, Ferguson yes. and so forth yeah so there's a bit of a difference there but uh, most interesting what caught my eye about it was um, what he describes as white fragility uh, and that might be a, a, a response to uh, some people might call it white privilege uh, and the white fragility that has happened with an African-American in the White House. And suddenly, suddenly, the spate of laws across the country passed to restrict the rights of others, to restrict the rights of others to vote. Others. I'm putting others in quotes here. You can't see it because this is radio. But others in quotes. We know who those others are. We can't let them vote. We can't let them have abortions. We can't let them get married. Uh, So anyway, uh, it'll be a conversation about race that we need to have in this country. We need more of these conversations. I uh, clearly, clearly after the last uh, few months years really of what we're seeing popping up across the country so i'll look forward to that conversation with warren squire in a bit uh we have uh let's see rick sent we got three more three more republicans getting into the uh uh, race for the 2016 republican nomination uh not all today but rick santorum 
uh, will, uh, I think he already has, on Wednesday announced that he will be a candidate. He uh, won. He won the Iowa caucuses last time around back in 2012. Uh, not not that uh, we knew it that day. I think it took quite a while before we actually found out who won that. And by then, it was largely too late. The campaign had moved on. It was in Iowa in 2012, thanks to some folks. Uh, some uh, actually uh, somebody who we, we had on this uh, we had on the show. Edward True was his name. He was one of the people who said, "Wait a minute, they're not count. They didn't count it correctly at Republican headquarters. They didn't count the results." And this we know. Because at the caucuses, we hand-counted paper ballots publicly. And so when they came out, for example, and said, uh, Rick Santorum only got two votes at this one caucus. No, it turns out he got 22 votes. And that we know because the public was there. They were able to take pictures of what he actually got and so forth. So it took a while for the Republicans to admit it. But because the people were overseeing the counting of votes in Iowa we knew right away that the results that was announced by the Republican Party were wrong. And Rick Santorum actually was the winner. It took uh, many weeks and months before the GOP would admit it. But yes, Rick Santorum won the Iowa caucuses. He will now be getting back into this race in 2016. Also, New York Governor George Pataki. Anybody who know who he is? He actually the three term governor of uh, the state of New York. It's been a while. He's been out of uh, office for about nine years, but he will be getting into this race for some reason. Uh, on uh, Thursday, he will uh, as uh, who, who is it? the Hill says he will likely hit the launch button from New Hampshire. And then next week, oh, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, will also be entering this race for some reason from his hometown of central South Carolina, becoming the fourth senator to throw his hat into the ring. So that's happening on the Republican side. Meanwhile, over on the Democratic side, yes, there actually is a primary election uh, uh, going on, a primary campaign going on. There are more than one candidate. There is more than just Hillary Clinton in this race, even though you wouldn't know it by and large if you follow the media, uh, Bernie Sanders, senator from Vermont, had a huge, huge rally um, making his uh, entrance into the race uh, official, official, double official on Tuesday. A huge rally. Thousands of people turned out on the waterfront in, uh, in Burlington, Vermont, where uh, Sanders once served as the very popular mayor there. You wouldn't know it, though, because the media hardly covers this guy. It's as if he does not exist. And when they do cover him, they smear him. They marginalize him. We wrote, uh, uh, Ernie Canning, our legal analyst over at Bradblog, wrote a little bit about this right after Sanders officially announced he was getting in and how uh, on Meet the Press that Sunday didn't even mention the name Bernie Sanders. As a matter of fact, they didn't mention the name Bernie Sanders. His uh, name hadn't been uttered on Meet the Press since September of 2014 when he appeared, one of the rare moments when uh, Bernie Sanders was allowed on the show. During that same period from September until pretty much now, uh, Hillary Clinton had been mentioned uh, on 16 of 17 Meet the Press broadcasts in 2015. 
fair, fa- fairness and accuracy in reporting um, reported that during that same period, Republican candidates mentioned on Meet the Press were uh, numerous. Jeb Bush was mentioned 13 times, Scott Walker 12 times, Chris Christie 11, Rand Paul and Mike Huckabee 10 times each, and so on and so forth. But uh, they couldn't mention Bernie Sanders. They only mention him when he shows up. When he shows up months and months and months ago. Yeah. As if he's not even in the race. Uh, that, by the way, is Desi Doyen, our producer. Hi, Des. Hi. Um, that, uh, despite the fact that Sanders' positions, along with Elizabeth Warren, are incredibly popular. Uh, Ernie Canning wrote that uh, a recent uh, YouGov poll find, found that 94% of Americans agreed with Warren's argument, and uh, Sanders has a similar one, that our political system is rigged in favor of the rich and powerful. Nearly 9 in every 10 Americans agree that interest rates on student loans should be reduced. 80%, 80% want to expand Social Security, not cut it, and 72% agree with raising the minimum wage of Americans support Sanders' proposal for massive investments in infrastructure improvement and so on. And yet, Bernie Sanders is treated uh, as if he doesn't matter. As if it's not even a contest, as if the media has no interest whatsoever in there being an actual Democratic primary where the candidate is chosen by, you know, we the people. So to make things worse, even though Bernie Sanders had this huge kickoff rally... In Burlington, uh, Vermont, on Tuesday, here's an idea of of how the media are reporting it. This is Jonathan Topaz. And if you want to get a pen and paper, I'll, I'll give you his email address and his Twitter name in a second, as soon as I'm done explaining this. But here's how he covered it, uh, the, the, the kickoff rally. He's headline, it's not your everyday Americans at Bernie Sanders kickoff rally. Really? Not your everyday Americans. What do you mean by that, Mr. Topaz? The long-shot presidential contender launches campaign from the People's Republic of Burlington. Because, you know, the People's Republic. Like China. Like, that's where all the communists are. He says, these weren't your everyday Americans who came out to support Bernie Sanders on Tuesday. The self-described Democratic Socialist kicked off his long, long-shot run for the White House. Nobody's voted yet, but it's a long shot. His long shot run for the White House in his adopted hometown of Burlington, a lakeside city full of characters who might not have passed the pre-selection process for Hillary Clinton's tour of roundtables. He goes on to uh, smear the thousands of people that showed up for this rally. Dreadlocked guitarists, they're not everyday people. Uh, The patrons who browsed at the nearby Hempest which advertised itself as the largest organic hemp product store in the world. Because, you know, everyday Americans, they don't like hemp. Hemp products. Uh, It goes on and on and just smears the crap out of them in what is supposed to be a report on this uh, official kickoff of Bernie Sanders' campaign. So I reached out to Jonathan Topaz, tried to get a response, uh, uh, sent him email and uh, Twitter to say, well, uh, Jonathan, what is an everyday American as you see it? Could you give me some examples? I sent him via his uh, publicly posted email address, which is jtopaz at politico.com, if you'd like to ask him what an everyday American is. 
On Twitter, he is Jonathan Topaz, if you'd like to ask him there. I ask him in both places, have yet to get a response to what everyday American uh, might be. Um, it's uh, an interesting point. But, uh, and, you know, maybe that goes along with what we're going to talk about with the Orrin Squire in a bit. You know, oh, you mean they're not uh, white, middle class Americans from uh, the middle of the country? Who vote Republican? Is that what you mean? Are those the everyday Americans from the real America? Jonathan Topaz of Politico. Anyway, since the media isn't covering it, we're going to do something we we normally don't do. We're going to play an extended clip of Bernie's speech from the uh, waterfront in uh, beautiful Burlington. Um, it was about a 25-minute speech. Obviously, we can't play all 25 minutes, but we're going to play a very lengthy cut. Ten minutes here of Bernie Sanders, since you won't hear it apparently anywhere else. It's not even easy to find this video. And because we've squeezed it together as much as we can, uh, you know, a lot of the applause is taken out and so forth. But you can get an idea of the size of the crowd uh, and what Bernie Sanders stands for, since apparently very few others in the media will bother to tell you. Bernie Sanders kickoff rally edited down to about 10 minutes from Tuesday right here on the broadcast. Go ahead. Kick it, Des. I am proud to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Now is the time for millions of working families to come together to revitalize American democracy, to end the collapse of our middle class, and to make certain that our children and grandchildren are able to enjoy a quality of life that brings them health, prosperity, security, and joy. We are going to build a movement of millions of Americans who are prepared to stand up and fight back. This campaign is about the needs of the American people. Today, we live in a nation which is the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. But that reality means very little for most of us because almost all of that wealth is owned and controlled by a tiny handful of individuals. There is something profoundly wrong when the top one-tenth of one percent owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%, and we have shamefully the highest rate of childhood poverty of any major country. There is something profoundly wrong when one family, one family, owns more wealth in this country than the bottom 130 million Americans. This grotesque level of inequality is immoral, it is bad economics. It is unsustainable. This type of rigged economy is not what America is supposed to be about. This has got to change. It is a tragic reality that for the last 40 years, the great middle class of our country, once the envy of the entire world, has been disappearing. As a result of the disastrous Supreme Court decision on Citizens United, the American political system has been totally corrupted and the foundations of American democracy are now being undermined. What the Supreme Court said, essentially, was that it was not good enough for the billionaires to own much of the economy. They can now own 
the United States government as well. And that is precisely what they are trying to do. American democracy is not about billionaires being able to buy candidates and buy elections. The Koch brothers in this election cycle are prepared to spend more money than either the Democratic or Republican parties. That is not democracy. That is oligarchy. The debate is over. The scientific community has spoken in a virtually unanimous voice. Climate change is real. If we do not get our act together and have the United States lead the world in combating climate change, there will be more drought, more famine, more rising sea level, more floods. We are not going to allow the fossil fuel industry to destroy this planet. Combating political alienation, this cynicism, and this legitimate anger will not be easy. But that is exactly what together we must do if we're going to turn this country around. If we are serious about reversing the decline of the middle class, we need a major federal jobs program to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. I will also continue to oppose our current trade policies. Millions of American workers are now working for totally inadequate wages. The current federal minimum wage is a starvation wage and must be raised. Our goal must be that any worker in this country who works 40 hours a week is not living in poverty. This campaign, starting today, is going to send a message to the billionaire class. And that is, you can't have it all. You can't get huge tax breaks while children in this country go hungry. You can't continue sending our jobs abroad while millions are looking for work. You can't hide your profits in the Cayman Islands and other tax havens while there are massive unmet needs on every corner of this nation. To the billionaire class, I say that your greed has got to end. You cannot take advantage of all of the benefits of America if you refuse to accept your responsibilities. It's time to break up the largest financial institutions in this country. If a bank is too big to fail, that bank is too big to exist. We must be focused on campaign finance reform and the need for a constitutional amendment to overturn this disastrous Citizens United decision. I will not nominate any justice to the Supreme Court who has not made it clear that he or she will move to overturn that disastrous decision. We need to go further and establish public funding of elections. The United States of America must lead the world in reversing climate change and guarantee health care to all as a right through a Medicare for all single payer program. The Republican budget throws 27 million Americans off of health insurance, makes drastic cuts in Medicare. The Republican budget provides huge tax breaks for the very richest people in this country while they raise taxes on working 
families. We are going to expand Social Security benefits. We are going to move to a universal pre-K system for all the children of this country. A nation's greatness is judged not by what it provides to the most well-off, but how it treats the people most in need. And that is the kind of country we must become. I, as president, will fight to make tuition in public colleges and universities free. As president, I will defend this nation, but I will do it responsibly. I am vigorously opposed to an endless perpetual war in the Middle East. We must be part of an international coalition led by the Muslim nations that can not only defeat ISIS, but begin the process of creating conditions for lasting peace. I have seen, as many of you have, the promise of America in our own lives. But for too many of our fellow Americans, the dream of progress and opportunity is being denied by the grind of an economy that funnels virtually all of the wealth and all of the income to the top. And to those who say we cannot restore the dream, I say just look where we are standing today. As mayor, I worked with the people of Burlington to help turn this waterfront into the beautiful people-oriented public space it is today. The lesson to be learned is that when people stand together, when people are prepared to fight back, there is nothing that cannot be accomplished. We can live in a country where every person has health care is a right, not a privilege. We can live in a country where every parent can have quality and affordable childcare and where all of our qualified young people can get a college education regardless of their income. We can live in a country where every senior can live in dignity and security and not be forced to choose between food and medicine. We can live in a country where every veteran who has put his or her life on the line to defend this nation gets the quality health care and benefits they have earned and deserved. We can live in a country where every person, no matter, no matter their race, their religion, their disability, or their sexual orientation, realizes the full promise of equality that is our birthright as Americans. That is the nation we can build together. And I ask you and people throughout this country to join us in this campaign to build a future that works for all of us and not just the few people on top. That was Bernie Sanders speaking at a huge kickoff rally on the beautiful waterfront in Burlington, Vermont on Tuesday. We're happy to run that extended clip since the rest of the media seems very happy to smear him. By the way, that was like uh, Barack Obama sized crowds out there on that waterfront overflowing with folks uh, had to cut it all down uh, from 25 minutes down to about 10 minutes, but wanted you to get an idea of. Who he is, what he stands for, since the media won't tell you, and they pretend like uh, 
he's some kind of a, you know, from Mars, that it's not everyday Americans uh, who support him, uh, as Politico seem to describe it. I think his positions are very much uh, in line with everyday Americans. And if everyday Americans voted their conscience instead of who the media told them could win, then uh, Bernie has a very clear chance of winning. Anyway, we got to take a quick break. We will be back with Oren Squire and White Fragility right after this. Brad Friedman, this is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here with you. You know, last week uh, after this after the shootout in Texas down in Waco with these uh, rival gangs shooting at each other, shooting at police and so forth, uh, we, we were talking about the event. Uh, Desi and I were sort of joking, hmm, I wonder what's different about the coverage of that uh, Texas shootout melee, as the New York Times called it, as compared to, oh, you know, some other recent incidents where uh, we didn't even have shootouts like this, and yet police, uh, state officials were declaring states of emergency. Huh, wonder what was different about what happened in Baltimore after Freddie Gray or in Ferguson after Michael Brown. Uh, some folks in the media noticed uh, a, a similar, the similar question, I suppose. A CNN Sally Cohn observed that, quote, in much of the coverage of the Waco shootings, the race of the gang members isn't even mentioned. By comparison, the day after Freddie Gray died in the custody of police officers in Baltimore, not only did most coverage mention that Gray was black, but also included a quote from the deputy police commissioner noting that Gray was arrested arrested in, quote, a high crime area known to have high narcotic incidents, implicitly smearing Gray and the entire community. Cohn went on to write that now there's the word that the biker gangs have issued repeated threats against the police in the aftermath of the Waco melee, as the New York Times called it, during the uprising in Baltimore, I saw a flurry of tweets about black people, she writes, disrespecting property, throwing rocks at police. And now that these biker gangs have issued actual death threats, and we're talking about death threats with you know grenades and everything else, she asked, why am I not seeing tons of Twitter posts about white people disrespecting the lives of police? So why is it that in cases such as Michael Brown and Freddie Gray and so many others, race is made central to the story, even in instances where the black and brown people involved are are the victims of police violence? Research, she says, shows that implicit bias against black and brown people is real, as is white privilege. In the meantime, a few days just prior to that, over at Talking Points Memo, Oren Squire wrote a fascinating and interesting article that that picks up on exactly this point. Uh, Oren writes, recently released records show that Cleveland police would have wanted to charge 12 year old Tamir Rice with inducing panic and being an aggravated menace. He was shot and killed by an officer in less than two seconds while playing in the park with a toy gun. This development is juxtaposed with the news that a violent biker gang in Waco, Texas, shot up a restaurant parking lot. 
Nine biker gang members were killed. Police arrested 170 gang members and confiscated countless weapons. Apparently, those 170 weren't an aggravated menace worthy of immediate death, as was Tamir Rice, according to Austin Squire. Tamir Rice was an African-American, while the biker gangs were not. This scenario has repeated itself too many times to be coincidence. An 8-year-old child shot and killed by officers while she slept. A 17-year-old killed by police in his own home. 22-year-old immediately shot and killed in Walmart. Many more cases of armed, unarmed African-Americans immediately getting shot down and labeled as menaces. While on the other side of the, of the reality, the Aurora shooter, Timothy McVeigh, many other armed mass killers were arrested without a scratch on them. The most dangerous uprising that's threatening America's stability is in black protests in places like Ferguson or Baltimore, Oren Squire writes. It's taking place among an aging white majority that is losing its bearing on reality and destroying the gears of government, media and public welfare at its center is an inexplicable, illogic, and dangerous fear that some sociologists are now defining as white fragility. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Austin Squire, a freelance journalist who lives in New York City. He's also a playwright fellow at the Juilliard School. Uh, and it's great to talk to you about this and uh, the entire issue of race in America, what it means, where it's going. Austin Squire, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. It's Warren Squire, and uh, it's something that I've been obsessed about in the last year or two in not only the plays I'm writing, but the issues I've been researching. And about eight months ago, someone mentioned this article written by a professor in North Carolina, Robin D'Angelo. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by her coinage of the term white fragility. And I've been trying to talk to her for a while, and I was able to finally sit down over the phone and interview her, as well as Tim Wise, who's an anti-racism expert, and get their opinions on what exactly is going on. It's beyond a few random coincidences, but like I said in the article, is a trend that's not only supported by anecdotal daily confirmation on news, but also statistically. When you look at who are police more likely to shoot, who are police more likely to call a menace, and who is unarmed most of the time. Who's more likely to get convicted of drug offenses, yeah. and at the same time, who's considered the biggest threat. And it doesn't match up, and it's illogical. It, it, you're right, it is. And you had pulled together a number of, of, well, interesting points about the way that society seems to be reacting not just to what uh, is going on in these shootings, but the way the sort of uh, the, the white privileged power base seems to be reacting to that. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But what do you regard? Uh, and I guess what does this um, this professor regard uh, uh, D'Ange Robin D'Angelo as white fragility? What does that actually mean, uh, Oren? Uh, according to Professor D'Angelo, white fragility is this concept of people who are in the majority and who have the majority of power who feel like they're being bullied and constantly threatening who lash out as a response and end up not only hurting other people but themselves. So you can use the terminology for white fragility. You can use it for the war on Christmas that Fox News promotes every year, the war against Christians, the war against, you know, men. And as a response, they oppress Muslims or people of other races and ethnicities and religions, 
they reduce the amount of rights women have over their uh, over their own bodies. And it's completely illogical. In this particular case, we're talking about race. Mm-hmm. The white fragility applies. But really, you can use the same terminology for heterosexual fragility, mm-hmm. male fragility, male American fragility, uh, and many other forms, Christian fragility. It's this illogic of people who have the most power who act in abusive ways because they feel like they're being threatened. And they're not, and there's no statistics to support that, but it's a fear that continues in this uh, echo chamber because they only speak to like-minded people. So in America, there are many, many overlapping, you know, terms you use fragility, but I would say white fragility has probably done the most damage, not only to other races, but to white people themselves in rural areas and the countryside who vote against their own interests Mm -hmm. and who consistently vote for Republicans who are actually pretty clear in what they want to do, which is to deregulate and uh, strip away as many government rights that people have and services to give to the rich. The only way that that is anywhere um, tolerable to the vast majority of people who vote Republicans who are not rich is because they pull out the race card. And in a subtle way, they use that time and time again to make poor and rural white people think it's us versus them. And so time and time again, you see poor and middle-class white people vote for things that are going to harm them because they feel like they don't want immigrants to get a leg up or Mexicans or black people or anything that they feel is a threat to them. Yeah, and this was the point that uh, really caught my eye. Uh, you write, uh, Oren, in your article at uh, Talking Points Memo, uh, headline, Biker Gangs, Tamir Rice, and the Rise of White Fragility. Uh, you say that many white people feel like they're being directly attacked, so instead of waiting for an attack, white fragility promotes protection by putting punitive restriction on, quote, the others. And it was it was very really interesting because you, you pointed out how during the Obama era— we are seeing uh, this sort of uh, reactionary response to something, perhaps a fear, uh, you know, of, of a black man in the White House, perhaps a fear of, of uh, uh, you know, white folks losing the, the control, the platform that they've had all these years. And yes, they are passing laws to restrict others, whether it's abortion, whether it's the right to vote, uh, whether it's these stand your ground bills, uh, restrictive union laws, um, this is, you argue, a, a reaction that these types of laws, these types of restrictions are a reaction to a fear by these, uh, by these powers that be, that they're, they're sort of losing their, uh, the control they've enjoyed for so many uh, centuries in this country? They're not really losing control, if you look at the statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that there's a wider variety of people and that the white majority population are having less kids in comparison to other people. Right. But they disproportionately still hold all the gears of power, not only in government, society, media, business, in every single walk of life. The advantage is clearly on one side, yet there's this irrational fear of we're being attacked. And the anecdote that Robert D'Angelo mentioned was when she was in the state of Washington training uh, employees for the government because they had lost a class action lawsuit for discrimination filed by Native American tribes in the area. So they had to do uh, diversity training. And she, for the first time, came into contact with people who were just livid that they had to sit in the room and listen to diversity training (laughs) and who would pound the table, in a few cases, 
older white men would pound the table and talk about how they were losing the country and a white person couldn't get ahead. And you would look around the room, she said, and it would be only white people in the room. Like in a room full of only white faces and the person pounding the table about how white people can't get ahead. And I said, well, if you can't get ahead, who's winning? As Chris Rock would say, other people like, there's no one else here who has this advantage. And so it's a, I think it's also a subconscious fear of white privilege and subconsciously knowing that there is a distant advantage for people of color and a huge disproportionate advantage for white people that then gets covered with its fragility, um, turning it around and displacing that on other people and turning it into an anger because you know something's not fair. So it's not so much uh, the yeah. lo- it's not so much the loss of control, but the fear of the loss of control and uh, sort of acting out in response to that fear? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I just graduated, so I've been watching Mad Men uh-huh. um, on the couch and just binge-watching it. Uh-huh. But I could see how this is sort of a popular, one of the most popular shows, along with Breaking Bad, and it sort of portrays the white male fantasy of, in the office, as much as Breaking Bad portrays the cowboy do-it-yourself pioneer spirit. Um, and you see how popular these shows take off in comparison to other media forms because there's an underlying basis that everyone views things according to a white male narrative. I grew up watching Indiana Jones. I grew up watching and reading James Bond novels. I grew up identifying anything that had to do with adventure and exploration and fun with a white male hero or protagonist Mm -hmm. as the lead. So even though I'm African-American, even I had to deprogram myself a little bit because I see the world almost on a default way through a white male hero subconsciously, in some cases consciously. And not only white males see that, but I would willing to gander women see that and the majority of races in this country see that. So that's what we're fighting. We're fighting this huge underpinning myth that's going on in media and culture that white masculinity is the standard. It's such the standard that it doesn't even have to be mentioned. And the only time it is mentioned as far as race or gender is when it's not white male, mm. because that is abnormal, because that is not the standard, because that is the freakish other. And so maybe that plays plays into the, the, the media coverage of something like what's going on with Freddie Gray and that that's all about race. But, uh, you know, down in Texas, when you've got, you know, a very real threat, a real shootout, you know, with with, with cops and biker gangs, uh, the issue of race doesn't even come in. It is sort of the default, uh, you know, so there's no need to mention it, perhaps. Yeah, the, the whole trick of white patriarchy is it's so powerful, people pretend like it doesn't even exist. It doesn't even have to be said as far as when you're talking about a character and the race Mm -hmm. isn't mentioned or the gender isn't mentioned. We assume in this country that this is the standard. Mm -hmm. And it creates a very unfair society. And in some ways, white men are conscious of that and react like they're losing the country anytime someone who is not white male tries to tell their story, tries to tell about their injustice. It becomes an attack on them as opposed to addressing a systemic wrong like racism or sexism or homophobia. They take it as a personal attack on their white maleness. And that's the weird dynamic of why we can't address race in this country 
is because when black people talk about it, they're talking about changing a system which statistically has been proven for hundreds of years to put them at a disadvantage. Same thing with Latinos and other races. Mm -hmm. And when white people talk about racism, they seem to think that you're talking about them. And in some way become very uncomfortable. And it's a weird dynamic. Yeah, no, no, it it is weird. Uh, I I remembered a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago now, uh, Bill O'Reilly, Fox News, uh, Bill O'Reilly was on the John Stewart on on The Daily Show. And John Stewart basically said, look, all I want you to do is admit that white privilege exists. And this was something that Bill O'Reilly could not admit to. He could not understand it. It didn't. And, and by the way, I, I think to some extent he was being honest in that he really doesn't understand it. He, he didn't seem to understand that simply by being born white in America on Long Island, he was given a certain privilege, uh, Oren Squire, that that folks like you might not have been born into and that on a daily, uh, you know, on a daily basis. He and people like me, by the way, uh, a white uh, male American, uh, that we enjoy every day and simply take for granted. How much of this is about uh, these these white people, be it on Fox or anywhere else, who are pushing back against this? How much of, of it is opportunistic uh, and they understand what uh, what's going on and they're using it for political power? And how much of it is they just don't get it? I would think when you talk about Fox News, and people in D.C., they completely get it because they use uh, gay marriage issues, they use race, they use gender to divide people, and it's very intentional. And from being around a few conservative people, I can tell you that behind closed doors, these people have no love for Christians. They laugh at these people as being idiots. These are their supporters. They, they use them as rude and as chumps. So they have no, like thing where they want to sit around the table with other Christian conservatives. They just want their vote and they want their anger mm-hmm. to use as a wedge in every election and on every single ballot initiative. Uh, so there's that factor. People who are fully conscious of it, who make the media and who set the rules and who just use it in the most cynical, Machiavellian way to constantly divide people who are only thinking on an emotion basis and not logically or with any sense of empathy. Then there's another section which are the voters within that who are aware of it but are scared and don't want to address it and sort of bury it. And then there are people who just aren't aware of it at all that I would say are probably the vast majority that are just used again and again and again. And they're used to destroy the environment, to, like I said before, limit women's rights, to hurt the immigration policy in this country, to not actually get bad police officers out of police forces at a time before they start killing people Mm -hmm. one-armed. It's again and again repeating itself to destroy unions that would benefit them. And they consistently, like Lemmings, just react on the rage level without any thought process behind it. That's something- and the best way to break that is to actually start talking about empathy, to actually bring in, what if I wasn't like this? What if I could see the world from another person's, person's point of view? How would I view the world if I was a woman? Well, I would want Planned Parenthood because... That offers not only abortion, but an array of free services for lower-class and middle-class women. What if I was a black person raising a son in this country? How would I feel about Freddie Gray? How would I feel about Walter Scott? I would feel a little bit concerned, even more concerned that the powers that be don't seem to ever want to prosecute any of these people 
who commit these acts of murder. Again and again, use the empathy tool of reversing it and looking at the world through someone else's eyes. Because guess what? As a black person, I have to do that every day if I want to survive. As a woman, a woman has to do that every day if they want to get ahead in business. A gay person sees things through heterosexual eyes every day if they want to function in a society and get ahead. Yeah, you know, I've always wondered, uh, you know, how much... And I, and I think you're you're right on it, Oren, that, you know, there are certain people who understand what's going on, who understand this fear, and they play it to their advantage, like those folks on Fox, like the uh, Republican politicians who manipulate the voters into voting against their own interests. I've never understood, you know, for example, how... You know, I, I've been covering, for example, uh, photo ID voting restrictions for years at uh, bradblog.com, and I've seen a lot of, you know, elderly white Republicans getting screwed by these laws as well. And they, you know, it, it's like they don't, you know, they support these laws, and then suddenly they go, oh, this is going to uh, adversely affect me. I can't vote. Now I'm outraged. It seems like they fall for the Look at the all the stunt. people who opposed Obamacare. Look at all the white people who oppose Obamacare yeah. who now are on GoFundMe because they have cancer or they're losing their vision yep. and they're begging for money. And their main point against Obamacare is they didn't want government death panels and people shouldn't be begging on government handouts. And they are literally begging for money now because they don't have health care. They shot themselves and their children in the, few, in the foot, laying themselves with a massive amounts of debt and now have to go out with a beggar's bowl asking yeah. for handouts. Suckers because and they post something which is benefiting them. Yeah, so they are. Yeah, suckers and chumps indeed. Oren Squire, in, in the minute we have left here, you um, you write that after the Ferguson movement and videotapes of countless unarmed black men and women being murdered by police, it seems like this nation might be headed towards some moment of truth, the start of a movement toward greater justice for all. I read some hope into that, and I'll tell you. I, I, I as bad as things seem like they have gotten, I feel like the fact that we are now talking about these things suggests we may be on the cusp of a uh, a better age, a, a, a progressive era uh, in this regard. Do I am I correct to read some hope into uh, into your article, uh, Oren? Yes, I am hopeful. It's taken about over 20 years beginning with Rodney King, where it was the first incident of actually seeing what black people have been saying for decades of how they've been treated and the white majority disbelieving it. And that was the first time we could see it. And the vast majority of white population would rather believe their own philosophies than what they see with their own eyes. Mm. And this has repeated itself again and again. When you see the person getting shot down, choked to death, killed in the Walmart, and they would rather believe their own uh, psychosis than the person dying in front of them. That's how sick it is. But I think people are starting to cure themselves. Because you can only see this again and again so many times before that psychosis begins to break, before the fever of this delusion begins to go somewhere else. And I believe it will get better. I am hopeful. But unfortunately, it's not going to be through statistics. It's going to be anecdotal on a level of individuals changing people's minds. I wish there was some stat I could present to people that would see the difference between black and white people in this country, how they're treated, economics, health care, what services they got, the education. But those statistics are out there, and they've been out there for decades. The only thing that appears to change people, according to Robin D'Angelo and Tim Wise, is actual individual one-on-one experience with other people of color, 
other people from different backgrounds that then begins, that then starts people on the process of having empathy and seeing the world through other people's eyes. Well, I think so it's, that's what I'm hopeful for in this generation. Yeah, and I think it is going to take a while, but somehow, for some reason, uh, perhaps even paradoxically, with everything that's going on around the country, for some reason. Uh, I'm I'm feeling like we're on the cusp of of change. That uh, you know the the arc of justice is very long, but I feel like it might be bending in the right direction. Uh, Oren uh, Squire, uh, I want to thank you for having this conversation today and uh, for your article at Talking Points Memo uh, on this very conversation: biker gangs, Tommy Rice, and the rise of white fragility. Oren Squire, freelance journalist and playwright, really appreciate uh, talking to you about this today and. Hope we can stay in touch in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this. It's important that it gets out there. Let's keep the conversation going. Thank you, Oren. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Brad. Okay, as usual, we're running late, so we're going to take a quick break, and we will come back with some more Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Okay. I see what you did there, Desi Doyen. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to the Bradcast. My thanks to Oren Squire for that uh, conversation. We need to have more of them. Uh, we are, of course, running late. So uh, just one more uh, quick story here. House Speaker John Boehner <laughs> issued this statement. and You couldn't have more Republican dog whistles in this statement if you wanted them, uh, Desi Doyen. This is in response to uh, the EPA's final uh, finalized version of its Waters of the United States rule, basically a new regulation on how they're going to... Yeah, they're trying to clear up and keep polluters from polluting your drinking water supply. Yeah, horrible, horrible, apparently, because uh, here was the statement that that John Boehner put out, and you could start counting the number of... Uh, of dog whistle words in this in this okay the statement the administration's decree to unilaterally expand federal authority is a raw and tyrannical power grab that will crush jobs tyranny that was just the first sentence wow you got a unilateral tyrannical crush jobs house members of both parties have joined more than 30 governors and government leaders to reject epa's disastrous WOTUS rule. These leaders know firsthand that the rule is being shoved down the throats of hardworking people with no input and places landowners, small business, small businesses, farmers and manufacturers on the road to a regulatory and economic hell. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because they must be allowed to pollute those small businesses like Dow Chemical and Monsanto, tiny, tiny businesses that will be harmed. Otherwise, it's tyranny, raw federal authority, and a road to regulatory and economic hell. Understated much, Mr. Speaker? My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer today, uh, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, Also, my thanks to Oren Squire. 
And my thanks, as always, to you, our listeners. You can email me if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Otherwise, until we meet again, you can find me on the Twitters and the Facebook at the Bradblog, and, of course, at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Uh-huh.